Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. So I've heard from a lot of different people that it's a pretty tough job market at the moment. We've seen a bunch of huge tech companies fire a lot of employees. So I thought maybe now would be a good time to get Jet Metcalf on the show to talk about recruitment. Jet is currently the head of talent at Regrow Ag, but he was also the recruiting manager at Descartes Labs and had a similar role at Google. So I thought Jet would be a really good person to get on the podcast today and talk about applying for a job, getting picked, and how to negotiate a contract. Just before we get started, it's worth mentioning that if you enjoy this episode or if this topic around careers is important to you, go to our website, mapscaping.com slash podcasts, and there you can filter the episodes by careers, and hopefully you'll find more episodes that will be interesting and helpful for you. I'll put a link to that in the show notes of this episode. Hi, Jet. Welcome to the podcast. So my understanding is you are the head of recruiting at a company called Regrow Agriculture, and, and you've also got this long history within geospatial recruiting specifically, and, and this is what I'm, I'm really interested to talk with you today about. But I think before we get started, would you mind just introducing yourself to the audience, please? And, and maybe let us know how you got involved as a recruiter and specifically as a recruiter within the, the geospatial sector. Yeah, of course. And yeah, thanks for having me, Daniel. And yeah, you know, I um, maybe I'll just start from the beginning. I I really <laughs> I lucked out uh, to both find a career in recruiting in the first place, and then uh, even got more lucky to find a career in recruiting in geospatial. So you know, I had started my career in recruiting mostly just working for you know staffing solar fields and uh, electricians for construction projects, but. Had a great opportunity to to take some time out at Google, uh, supporting their masters and PhD recruiting specifically. But through this, I had actually supported one group in particular, which is the Geo Group within Google, which you know runs the mapping function among others. And you know around that time, a a small company had just raised their Series B round of company by the, you know, Series B round of funding by the name of Descartes Labs. Um, and coincidentally enough, uh, Descartes Labs was actually based where I was from here in New Mexico, which isn't exactly known as a tech hub by any means. Um, so had the opportunity uh, to come right after our Series B round of funding when I knew that there was going to be a lot of positions to be hiring for. And you know, I, I was with Descartes Labs for about four and a half years uh, from that Series B round of funding, grew the company, uh, you know, beyond 100 employees, mixture of scientists, software engineers, and really got to learn a lot about the geospatial industry specifically. And then, yeah, you know, more recently have uh, switched to kind of a downstream geospatial analytics company called Regrow Ag, working on using satellite imagery and Google Earth Engine, among other geospatial insights, to essentially, you know, give better insights to sustainability for the agriculture industry generally. So just working, you know, in my own way to, to mitigate, uh, you know, my own carbon footprint by uh, hiring people who know what they're doing uh, in the geospatial agriculture and software industries. So yeah, I, I, I frankly got lucky. But uh, what I've just really enjoyed is you know, how interesting the geospatial sector can be, how many different use cases there have been, and frankly, also how nice the people in the industry as well are. Uh, that's not always the case. So uh, it seems everyone comes from a, a common thread of, uh, you know, being kind uh, on top of just being very, very intelligent and interesting to talk to. That's interesting you say that. That's something I really appreciate about it as well. So and, and to be honest, I haven't got that much experience in other industries and in other sectors, but I, I like that people are relatively open in this one. I like that interactions that I have with people online, especially they, they seem to lead with kindness. They might not agree with what I'm saying or my point of view, but the point is that they, it's, it's a discussion as opposed to an argument. I, I really appreciate that. Wow. You have a breadth of experience in this industry from Google to Descartes Labs to your current position. And I think you mentioned you, you moved to Descartes Labs during the Series B. So this is relatively early on in, in, in the company's history. What was the major difference that you noticed, like moving away from Google, an established big organization, to a company that had just raised their Series B funding round? You know, it's a really interesting question. And 
funny enough, I, I think everyone has this perception, obviously, that, you know, these, the, the Googles of the world and these large, you know, companies just have everything 100% figured out and that, you know, there's such a rigidity to it. And honestly, that wasn't my experience uh, from Google. I think I had, frankly, a, a fair amount of autonomy and really got to expose myself to a, a level of recruiting that I appreciated. Uh, at Google and obviously learned best practices across the board. They do an incredible time, you know, just making sure everyone's prepared and uh, have enough resources around them. But then transitioning to Descartes Labs, you know, (laughs) it was so different. Uh, You know, I, instead of hiring, you know, at Google, I would hold, I, I would hire 10 people in a week sometimes. Um, And uh, that was a lot different from Descartes Labs where we had to be, you know, cautious with how we were spending money and, um, you know, just kind of making sure that we're putting all of the resources in the right place. But luckily through this, you know, Descartes Labs was such a great entry into geospatial because it really, (laughs) I got to see some of the best people in the geospatial industry and work with them closely. And, you know, as you had mentioned, kind of that have that kindness uh, that we see in the geospatial industry. So I, I just had an infinite amount of people who are willing to take the time and teach me what being geospatial industry was like. And we, <laughs> it was a lot different from a resource perspective. Uh, we had to figure out a lot of things out ourselves. We had to, you know, just kind of iterate and see what works, what doesn't work and be quick to, you know, abandon process or add new processes, but really learned a lot of, you know, what a less mature company looks like. But I think around, you know, the, the company generally, there was such an attitude of, you know, getting things done that, you know, everyone was on the same page. So it was surprising how easy it became over time. uh, Once I had that context uh, for the company, which I think is just a, a credit to everyone who was who was there at the time. So it's, it sounds like you you had a lot of help. You talked about like understanding the the geospatial world and the help that the kindness you experienced for, from your colleagues at Descartes Labs. Was it hard to hire for for geospatial roles? Like because it sounded like you were in the process of understanding the industry yourself. My guess is that maybe not being a deep expert in it at, at that stage. And then hiring for geospatial roles, I'm wondering if that was difficult. And let me give some context here. Oftentimes, you know, in, in geospatial land, we say things like spatial is special. And I'm wondering if, if it is in terms of hiring for geospatial roles, or is it just like hiring for a, another, like any other technical role? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think, unfortunately, I'm, I'm going to have a, a caveated answer um, because it really depends. And there, there are a lot of different aspects to hiring geospatial, you know, skill sets generally that, you know, make it both more difficult as well as less difficult. You know, first and foremost, obviously, the volume of qualified candidates is going to be less in any sort of specialty skill set. Uh, geospatial, of course, uh, among them as well. So there's just a, a smaller pool to pull from uh, in the appropriate skill sets when you're hiring a geospatial data scientist with remote sensing and mining experience. Um, that's going to be such a, <laughs> such a limited pool. Um, but, you know, to the advantage, what's interesting is because there's so many common skill sets uh, among these candidates. Um, so when I'm hiring a technical role, say a software engineer or a scientist, and they have to have GDAL experience or GeoPandas experience, uh, any sort of these geospatial skill sets, it narrows it down and it makes my job easier because I, I know exactly where to look. Um, you know, I can look at geospatial Reddit threads and, you know, I, I can look at a resume and see, yep, this person has GDAL. Great. Let's get them on the phone and, you know, actually talk about it. So it, it almost has a few different components to it that make it both more difficult from a limited uh, volume perspective, uh, but also easier because it's easier to filter out the non-important skill sets and, and really focus on the, uh, the key technical skills that are going to be important for success. Yeah, so I, I think this is interesting. It's almost sounded like GeoPandas GDAL was a, a proxy for, ah, yes, that this means you know, a geospatial person. In, in some ways, <laughs> I guess it is. What else? could I do as a candidate to, to stand out in your eyes, apart from like having these sort of keywords scattered throughout my, my application? 
What, what else are you looking for? How, how do I stand out? How do I get noticed during the hiring process? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, and I, I, I can't emphasize this enough, resume formatting and CV formatting is actually very important because oftentimes the gatekeepers to the roles, in this case, myself, uh, recruiters, you know, don't have the deep technical skill sets to understand the nuances of the projects you're working on. And so we do look for keywords. Uh, we look for, you know, does this person have these, you know, technical skills that I know are necessary? And they have to be heavily featured on the resume for me to decide to move forward. Um, and as such, you know, resume formatting, clear formatting, and kind of emphasizing the translatable skill sets is incredibly important. But more so, you know, what I've seen with a lot of geospatial candidates is they've worked on a lot of projects uh, over time. And those projects may vary from academic projects to side projects. And oftentimes what I find is, you know, the, the candidates who have the directly related skills. Um, so in my current role at Regrow Agriculture, I may see an overlap with a, you know, a yield prediction uh, model that some geospatial data scientist had had worked on. And just that one relevant touch point uh, in their background and experience is, is really important for me to understand, hey, this may be a great candidate who's worked on some very similar problems. And I always, you know, <laughs> the, the nuances of cover letters as, as well, um, you know, I, I know Many companies do not review cover letters, so I don't want to promise that cover letters will always be removed uh, or uh, reviewed. But it, it's important because that allows you to kind of speak the story of you know why you are specifically interested in the company that you're applying for, and that really makes the difference and makes an application stand out. It's interesting that you mentioned that you know sometimes you can see the overlap. Are you expecting that? you do that work, that you're the one looking for the overlap, you know, putting two and two together? Or are you hoping that the candidate shows up and says, hey, I, I know you asked for this. I haven't done this, but here's a similar project. This is the overlap and have them like show you the overlap. It really depends, uh, to be honest. And it, it depends on a lot of actually the macroeconomic climate and what the job hiring you know, space looks like at the time. Sometimes, depending on how competitive the landscape is, I, we won't even receive applications uh, for different roles. So I'll have to go out and seek out those relevant projects and experiences and you know, do what we call as sourcing uh, to find the right candidates in the right experience at the right time, um, which is a lot more you know, on me to see those relevant overlap. When the market, such as now, typically favors the employer, it becomes important for candidates to highlight and you know differentiate themselves because ultimately it it's more of a volume game uh, when the the market is kind of in a, a downturn for candidates generally. So it's important to always highlight you know as as important as possible the relevant overlap and skill sets that you have from your previous experience. And let's say um, you weren't getting any applications and. The market was favoring the candidates and you were out sort of seeking candidates for your role. Where would you be looking at? And like, obviously, this depends on the project, but what kinds of things are you looking for? Yeah, you know, I, I, I do a similar type of search from when I'm looking at resumes. Um, so, you know, a, a primary tool that everyone's going to be familiar with is, of course, LinkedIn, uh, which is, you know, still to this date, the most important professional networking uh, you know, site generally. And, you know, what I'll do is run a keyword search on the back end, a little, you know, behind the curtain moment, but a recruiter version of LinkedIn looks quite a bit different uh, than the LinkedIn that most people are going to be aware of. It has a lot of search features and functionality that allows me to, to filter these candidates appropriately. And, you know, as such, I'm able to, you know, run essentially a keyword search on my back end to find things using the example again, like GDAL, GeoPandas, it'll run kind of a full scrape of their profile so that I can, you know, only reach out to the most relevant candidate. And then <laughs> it's just the manual 
look through all these profiles, uh, you know, see who seems to stick out and then ultimately, uh, you know, see if I can uh, get them on the phone to, to sell them on the opportunity. I think this is a, a really good insight. I think a lot of people, especially in the, in the technical world, tend to focus on, on maybe Twitter and LinkedIn feels a little bit boring perhaps. But I think if you're looking for a job, it's probably worth then thinking about having some of these keywords and making sure you're, you're documenting your experience and understanding and the tools that you're using in such a way that people like yourself can, can find you. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, I also think LinkedIn can be quite boring at times, uh, just uh, <laughs> out of full transparency. But I, uh, you know, it is really important to have, you know, almost a, you know, a carbon copy of your resume, specifically the level of detail associated on your resume to be reflected on your LinkedIn. Uh, so that regardless if you respond or not, uh, that the you know recruiters can find you in the proper ways as well. But you know, I do also encourage using more creative channels. Um, you know, when a a candidate you know messages me on Twitter, um, frankly, they'll probably have a you know a, a higher success rate because the the volume is going to be lower, and they'll be you know specifically seeking out uh, the opportunities that I have and. As such, it, it makes for a pretty interesting. So I, I recommend always, you know, kind of pursuing like a a composite approach uh, in many ways and try as many channels as possible. That is really interesting. I think a lot of people would be maybe a little bit, not afraid, but like cautious about doing that, you know, wondering if they're overstepping the mark. But it's really interesting to hear you say that. So we've been talking about how to stand out in, in, in the hiring process and you gave us some good insights there, which I, I really appreciate. I think maybe we should address the elephant in the room. So lately in tech, there's been a lot of layoffs. And I, I guess what this has meant, I mean, you, you know more about this than me, but my guess is this has kind of flooded the market with a lot of very qualified people, very qualified technical people. What are you seeing when you try and hire for, for geospatial roles? Has this had any effects that, that you can see? Yeah, un unfortunately, it has. Um, and, you know, what we see, you know, as recruitment uh, in tech and specifically in geospatial is that these, you know, layoffs affect the volume of candidates uh, that we're attracting to any position. Obviously, each of these large tech companies and even smaller geospatial companies have all, you know, changed in size and they've also changed their hiring outlook. Uh, so there are currently less opportunities uh, for software engineers, data scientists, and the market itself is pretty difficult uh, right now. And it is probably more difficult than it has specifically over the last probably six years or so. And as such, it's, it's even more important uh, to be able to stand out in an application. So I'll give an example. At my current role, you know, if I were to post a, a geospatial data scientist position or a geospatial software engineering position, I may attract somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 to 200 applications in a 48-hour period, wow. which really emphasizes the need to stand out and to use a multi-channel approach, you know, reach out on LinkedIn in addition to applying online and follow all the companies on social medias. And these are the difference makers because when I look at two applications side by side, and they're very similar in experience, but I see that this candidate follows us on Twitter and LinkedIn and has liked several posts and just feels like a really engaged candidate, that can be all the difference that's required for me to decide to move forward with X candidate over the one that doesn't have that level of engagement. And more generally, in, in tough job markets like we're seeing today, my biggest recommendation is to, to stay persistent and to stay patient. It can be extraordinarily frustrating as a job seeker to be denied uh, opportunities, to be rejected, of course. And you, you really have to remain optimistic uh, through these trying times and find out all of the different opportunities that you're interested in seeking out. Maybe now's a time to, to consider a career change into a different role or to bring on new responsibilities. Take a certificate program that may be directly applicable to the job you're pursuing. It's a good opportunity to really kind of make sure that you're positioning yourselves correctly because in a tough job market, you have to be very, very competitive. Yeah, thank, thank you very much for that. I think that's, that's fascinating that you've 
within 48 hours that you can expect to get 200 applications. It's, it's kind of amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I can check my inbox some days and I'm just like, oh no, how am I, how am I going to do this? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I guess from your side, it's also overwhelming. Although my, my guess is that you could probably pretty quickly filter out a good chunk of those, but still, it's, it's a lot of people to, to consider. Yeah, definitely. I want to ask a question around being over and underqualified. Uh, I'm sort of hoping that you can help people understand when am I overqualified? When am I underqualified? Because when I think about a job, a role, a position, I think like sometimes I'll be overqualified for some of the things I'm doing and sometimes I'll be underqualified. But it'd be interesting to hear your perspective on it. Like, When do you think or is there anything we should be thinking about when we're applying for a position and we're like, oh, I don't know where I land on this scale here, on the spectrum? It's a great question. And um, I hate to once again give a it depends answer, but it really does depend on quite a few different things. So when we have a level associated with a role, you know, obviously senior, junior, you know, mid-career, um, you know, just a, a few common examples, there's a few reasons why we have it leveled, which is either the nature of the work, you know, if the the work is, you know, low level and suited for, you know, someone just starting in, say, their like data engineering, geospatial data engineering career. And the, you know, the nature of the work isn't that complicated and is more suitable for a junior level employee. We oftentimes are seeking specifically those junior level employees because we know that the type of work is going to be more suitable for that level of experience. And then, of course, the financial aspects as well. Sometimes I only have X budget for this role. And so I know that means that it's going to be a more junior candidate. Or if that budget is you know, quite a bit larger, maybe we can bring on a senior or even a principal data scientist. And it really kind of depends on a few factors of you know, the seniority level. But for you yourself as a job seeker, um, specifically when you're seeking opportunities with smaller companies, I would always hesitate to recommend excluding yourself uh, from an opportunity. And so oftentimes, you know, maybe a junior data scientist positions opened up at a small company and a senior data scientist is interested in the company but is nervous about being overqualified for the role. Oftentimes, I'd probably recommend to still apply to those roles and specifically maybe reach out to, you know, a recruiter or any connections that you have within the company to, to mention Hey, I, you know, I, I feel like I'm, I might be overqualified for this position, but I'm so interested in X role and X company uh, that I thought I'd, you know, at least uh, reach out. And I think that allows for a much more flexible opening into the, the companies that you're, you know, seeking employment for. Because oftentimes, you know, on the back end, I, I'm just trying to fill whatever positions I have on my plate. And although I may have a junior data scientist position opened up, I may know that there is a, a senior or a principal data scientist that's opening up just in a couple weeks. And as such, you know, by excluding yourself from the opportunity, I, I won't have the opportunity to be like, oh, yeah, I have that senior role that's opening up in a month. Let me take this call with this candidate. And so I, I'd recommend oftentimes to, to try and not disqualify yourself for being underqualified or overqualified and frankly put the agency on the company to make that decision for you that way you at least have some exposure into the the company generally so i think this makes a lot of sense and when you're talking about junior senior and principal you know data scientists in in this case yeah it makes sense to sort of divide the roles up that depending on the task that you have at hand the task that needs to be done and maybe the the compensation that that's available at the moment and, and I can see how either you can sort of decide whether you're underqualified or overqualified for those particular roles. But what about if you're moving to somewhere new? So you're a technical person and you're wanting to move into a, a leadership role or perhaps a, a less technical role. How do you decide, and, and this is like from both sides of the coin, how do you decide whether I'm underqualified or overqualified for this? Because I, I think you know, people grow and develop during their careers. And it's not unthinkable that technical people might want to become less technical and more involved in the leadership side of things. Yeah, it's a great question. And 
oftentimes, right, we, we see that a lot. People who are interested in changing their role, changing their responsibility. And, you know, what we still look for are kind of those translatable skill sets. Um, so I'll, I'll give an example, two examples, probably. Say we have a, a junior data scientist who wants to switch into like a sales engineering role. That's a pretty common, you know, kind of transition that we see specifically for geospatial data scientists. And so when I'm looking at, you know, an application from a junior data scientist for a sales engineer, I know the sentiment right away, right? Obviously, I, I can see that they're hoping to maybe make a change. And so what I'm looking for are still kind of those translatable skill sets. Um, so oftentimes I'll look, have they seemingly had any customer interaction in their roles? Have they focused on customer projects? Um, you know, have they done demos for you know, different scientific projects and still looking for those translatable skill sets? But oftentimes, when you are pursuing a career change, you have to be much more intentional about how you present your information so that that intentionality about changing careers, say, you know, if you're an individual contributor hoping to switch into a management track, you're going to need to be more intentional about how you present that information. So you can use things like objective statements in resumes. Um, obviously, as I had mentioned, cover letters are actually probably a great opportunity to really get that point of, across of, hey, I've spent the last seven years as an individual contributor. I've maybe led technical projects, but now I want to get into people management. And you have to, you know, speak that intentionality through cover letter, you know, through these opportunities. And then you do just have to be more patient uh, is, is what I'd refer to because you may be competing against candidates that have direct related experience. But if it's something that you really want to pursue, you need to just kind of speak with that intentionality of why you're hoping to make that change. And then one more point that I'd like to add is oftentimes what we see is changing company sizes is actually a great opportunity to, you know, change actually your career trajectory. So if you're, you know, at a small, you know, startup or, you know, small company, there's going to be a lot more flexibility in your role and, uh, you know, assignments day to day. But it, it'll give you good exposure to the skill sets that then you can, you know, go to a larger company that has more training programs and more resources accessible to, you know, potentially change careers and, you know, kind of use this composite approach of small company and large company to kind of gain the skill sets that you're really seeking for. That is a really good insight. That sounds like a, a great idea. I, I want to stay on in this topic just for a second here. And I'm wondering if you can give us an understanding of how much experience plays into your decision and how much qualifications play into your decision when we think about making a change from perhaps a, a technical role to a leadership position. And I, I wonder, I hope you understand the question here, but if I have experience, you talked about experience kind of things before, leading projects, uh, giving customer demos, that kind of thing. How do you weigh that against something like I've done a lot of courses, I've been on a leadership course and participated in, in this sort of official qualification? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. And to that point, I, I think maybe an important thing to, to realize is that myself as a recruiter and any person in recruiter are essentially, we have customers, which are our hiring managers. And these hiring managers are the you know, individuals that have to make the final decision on the candidates that we end up hiring. And as a result, what I have to do as a recruiter is to understand the tolerance level of the hiring manager that I'm supporting. Do they emphasize what skill sets are most important for them? Are they open to bringing from non-traditional backgrounds? And that's going to vary from person to person, from department to department. And it's, it's kind of a learning experience to understand what hiring managers are specifically looking for. My, myself, what I look for is kind of a, a composite. And I, I kind of use that word a lot of, I'm, I'm not looking for any one thing, but instead I'm looking for enough touch points for what I'm really evaluating for, whether that comes from, you know, obviously on the, the side of like technical experience doing 
exactly the right job that I'm looking for, or, hey, I see that they're a software um, engineer, but they've taken these leadership courses and they've taken these online courses. So I can see kind of that intentionality and that thread that runs through their profile and experience. And depending on what my hiring manager is really looking for, that's where I can understand, you know, hey, they're open to someone who doesn't have direct management experience, but is headed in that direction. So then that allows me to have the flexibility to reach out for those slightly less traditional candidates. This is really interesting. So what, what I'm hearing you say is that you're in the middle. You sound almost like a, a real estate agent where <laughs> someone is selling a house on one side and someone's buying a house on the other side, and you're the go-between. I think up until now, in my mind, you, you were the end stop. You were the person that made the final decision. But I, I think that this adds a, a, an extra dynamic to the situation for me. So I appreciate you walking us through that. Right at the start of the conversation, we talked about those, those differences between going from a, a big, well-established company to you know, a, a startup. Do, do you see differences when you hire for, for these different kinds of organizations as well? And if you do, maybe you could walk us through some of them. What are you looking for in a, if you're hiring for Google? And what are you looking for if you're hiring for a, a startup? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I think what there is is a much more tolerance for large companies. And I, I say that because they have essentially just more resources in place to absorb candidates from those non-traditional backgrounds or that have kind of different types of skill sets uh, generally, um, which is why I, I do recommend that, you know, larger companies are a great entry point for early stage or transitioning uh, candidates because it, it's almost a landing spot where you can learn the proper skill sets. But I always also recommend not to get into the, you know, the trap of staying too large of companies. If, you know, things like startups and everything are, are an interest to you, you want to make sure that you don't get too stuck in how a large company operates because it is quite a bit different, uh, you know, from these uh, smaller companies. But to that end, when I'm hiring for a large company such as Google or, you know, even previously when I would staff uh, for even solar fields and things like that, I knew it was going to be a, a volume game. And, you know, what I would look for is, you know, I, I knew I could get a hundred, if not a thousand. I mean, at Google, we would <laughs> average, I don't even know how many applications per day. And, and as such, I, I knew it was never going to be an absence in the quality of candidates. Whereas, you know, at a smaller company, we do just have to be more intentional. We have to see those types of skill sets. We have to do more outreach uh, to find the right candidates. It, it's just a different, you know, skill set altogether where larger companies are going to have a higher tolerance. And then smaller companies just need to fill the position as soon as possible because when a startup posts a position, you know that something's probably on fire uh, on the back end. and. <laughs> There's some pipeline that stopped working and no one knows exactly what's going wrong. And there's just a, a sense of urgency, uh, which is both uh, a really maybe stressful, uh, I can say that, but also really rewarding environment to see that, you know, tangible one-to-one, -one, we're hiring this person to solve X problem as well. When you describe it like that, it's, it doesn't sound like just the question of finding the right candidate in terms of the hard skills. It also sounds like finding the right candidate in terms of the soft skills. Who's going to take ownership for this thing here? Who is not too proud to, to get their hands dirty and be expected to do a wider range of, uh, of jobs? At, at least that, that's what I, I think of when I, when I listen to you talk. Am, am I on the right track? Definitely. I think that the soft skills are oftentimes the most important, you know, aspect of any candidate. Um, and it, it may depend slightly on the, the role. Um, if it's, you know, an individual contributor working on kind of an isolated project, it might, you know, matter less those soft skills. We just need the, the hard technical skills that can get the technical project done. But oftentimes I find that that's not really the case uh, because with any technical role, there's going to be teamwork, collaboration. There's going to be a, a context uh, that's required to be truly successful in that role. And I, I can speak to my current company now, Regrow Agriculture. And 
we receive a lot of interest. Uh, there's obviously a, a lot of interest in the climate tech space right now. So people with geospatial backgrounds and software engineering are seeking out climate opportunities. And it allows us to be somewhat selective. And one of the main criteria that we really select against is can this technical candidate speak to the customer? And that's really a, a, a skill set that's really important. Um, I think individual contributors, software engineers, and you know, frankly, even things like geospatial data scientists lose the broader context of who is paying for us to do this work. <laughs> and instead, they're, they're so focused on, well, I use the, the cutting edge machine learning tool to do object segmentation on satellite imagery, which is obviously super cool and a really exciting project. But the difference between that candidate who's done this deeply technical you know, skill set versus the one who knows, hey, I had to ship a project in two weeks because the customer needed X. So I didn't have time to do a full deep learning model. I just came up with a statistical model that made sense for the application in the time that I was given. And that type of context and customer kind of focus is really a huge difference maker. And I would encourage any, any scientist or engineer or deeply technical, especially geospatial person, to start to absorb that context. You know, understand what customers are doing. Talk to your salespeople and really kind of get that broader context uh, because that can make a huge difference for you know accessibility into into the market generally. Would you? I, I'm curious. Would you give the same kind of advice to academics that were looking to leave academia and move into the private sector? That's probably the biggest <laughs> recommendation I would give uh, to academia. Um, it's always going to be tough. Um, obviously, we know academics have to be focused in their applications uh, because you know they, they have to publish, they have to focus, they have to work with their PIs and everything. But the most successful academics who are transitioning out of academia are going to be the ones who can still not even necessarily know the context, uh, because obviously it's going to be very different in industry rather than academia but rather just be able to speak to, you know, that customer context. And oftentimes, you know, I, I talk with a lot of geospatial academics and the ones who can speak to why they're really hoping to transition out of academia because they want to see that tangible customer impact and, you know, really kind of pursue industry opportunities for the right reasons, I, I think can make a huge difference. And oftentimes, what I still look for are kind of those translatable use cases. Um, so an academic may not be working with, you know, a large enterprise customer, of course, but they still have a team of stakeholders that they have to do to push out research and timelines and project management. And so I still look for kind of those soft skill sets. And I, I hope that they can translate the differences between industry and academia because they they run at a different pace is, is what I'd say. Yeah, yeah I, I'm sure they do. Okay, so I think you've given us a lot of great insight in what you're looking for, depending on the, the, the kind of role you're trying to fill and some of the challenges around it. And I really appreciate that. I wonder if we could move on and sort of think about post-selection process. So you've found a person that you want to work with, that you want to hire, and it's time to negotiate a contract. Are you expecting candidates to negotiate? It's a good question, and it really depends on the role. And I'll, you know, I'll say specifically when I'm hiring a, a junior geospatial data scientist, uh, for instance, I I'm probably anticipating a little bit less negotiation than if I'm hiring <laughs> a a sales executive, uh, for instance. I I know that that's going to come with ten versions of that offer, and uh, you know, really. You seeing that skill set of negotiation uh, live with the the sales folks, but I, I am expecting negotiation. I, I think specifically over the last probably five to six years, um, we've seen that there there's been an increase in agency and transparency around pay for candidates and the the broader job market, and with that becomes uh, a lot more empowered candidates. Um, so oftentimes when I'm approaching 
you know, an offer stage with a candidate, I'm frankly expecting the candidate to, to probably do some negotiation. But how that negotiation goes is really important for the candidate and for the company itself. Because if you, you, you have a lot of opportunities to increase your total compensation package, but you, it is still a delicate topic. Um, and you really need to, to make sure you're pursuing that negotiation with the, the right intention uh, to, to make sure that it's, you're not going to burn any bridges uh, when you're at the offer stage. And my biggest recommendation to candidates is to try and be as transparent around compensation and negotiation as soon as possible. The best recruiters will ask those types of questions almost immediately uh, in your candidacy. And ask, you know, what your compensation expectations are and, you know, what's important to you as far as the next opportunity. And I, I do recommend to be as transparent as possible. Your recruiter in many ways is almost your partner to candidates. I, I think there's a lot of attitude that your recruiter is almost your gatekeeper um, to the opportunity. But, you know, me as a recruiter, if I could pay people whatever they wanted, I would because I, I would just get the job done and I'd get to move on to the next role. But that's obviously not the reality that we can operate in. But we still have the candidate's best interest in mind. And so by being transparent and to be respectful to the recruiter that you're working with is going to be really important down the line when you do have that offer to, you know, say, hey, Jet, I, I really am excited about this opportunity. This is great. I was wondering, you know, what portions of this offer are going to be negotiable? Can I, you know, ask for an increase to the base salary? Can I ask an increase for stock options? Is there a trade-off between those two? What are the benefits package? And kind of having that transparency and forthrightness as soon as possible is really important for candidates. How do I do this like as a candidate and not come across as just being greedy and entitled? Because you know, I think we're, we're still building, when we're in this process, we're still testing each other out. No one's signed any documents yet. We're building a relationship together. And I, I think you were stressing earlier that, that the idea here is to not burn the bridges, to, to be cautious and approach this in the most respectful way possible. So how do I not sound you know, like just an entitled greedy person that just wants everything? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And those people are out there, um, although they are, you know, luckily pretty infrequent. But what I would recommend doing is to, to really pursue communication around compensation very delicately. And one of the biggest, you know, if not pretty simple tactic is to emphasize your interest in the position before bridging the topic of, you know, negotiation. So if you send me uh, a recruiter an email that says, hey, I, I need at least $100,000 more uh, for this opportunity to be even remotely interesting to me, that's obviously <laughs> going to be a, a pretty aggressive uh, turnoff and, and may, uh, you know, dictate a, a different outcome uh, from what you're expecting. But instead, if you pursue it respectfully and say, Hey, Jed, I'm super excited about this position. This is exactly the type of company, industry, position that I'm interested in. But I, I have to have it make sense for me financially. And then having data-driven decisions. Um, so we all have connections into the industry. We all have access to Google. Uh, we all have access to Things like Glassdoor, although I'd recommend probably taking Glassdoor with a, a, a heavy grain of salt uh, if you're trying to get salary data from it. But, you know, use all of the resources available to you to understand what your potential market value is. That way you can understand when you receive an offer where that falls in the spectrum of competitiveness. And then using your recruiter as a partner and, you know, approaching it respectfully say, hey, I'm excited about this opportunity. But I did see that, you know, for US-based data scientists, you know, that this salary is a little bit more indicative of my level of skill set. What do you think about that? Is it possible? What aspects of the offer are negotiable? That way you have all of the pieces in place to make the proper negotiations. Let's pretend for a second that pay wasn't negotiable. What else should I be focusing on then? 
if I can't focus on the salary? Yeah. So if salary is not negotiable, which, you know, happens with somewhat frequency, you're going to ask if there are other aspects to the offer that are negotiable. Things may be equity is oftentimes a easier lever to pull for companies because it's obviously tied to the long-term value of the company. So you're going to want to see if equity or stocks are negotiable. There's also bonus uh, structures that may be accessible to you. So, you know, you may be able to increase the percentage of a yearly bonus. Uh, you may also be able to negotiate a bonus at all. You want to understand if signing bonuses are part of the company culture. I'll speak to my current company. We don't have signing bonuses and we never have. But many companies utilize signing bonuses to overcome those hesitancies around salary negotiations. Um, and then some more creative ones as well um, are going to be benefits as well. You're probably not going to be able to negotiate like a higher retirement contribution. Those things are oftentimes more standard. But you may be able to negotiate things like learning and development stipends or different kind of more perks associated with the role that may be negotiable uh, from company to company. And that's really how I recommend pursuing negotiation is to frankly, just ask your recruiter, you know, what aspects of the offer are negotiable. That way you ha are working with the maximum amount of knowledge of what can be changed, even if it's not salary. And, and just so I'm clear, when do you think I should start asking these questions? How early is, is too early? And, and how late is too late? It's a good question. So oftentimes, as I had mentioned, the, the best recruiters will, you know, broach that topic as soon as your first call with the candidate because they need to know those things to understand where you are leveling from, where you're coming from as far as salary expectations, which are very important early on uh, in the process. So you can expect sometimes to have these discussions around salary as soon as your first call with a recruiter, uh, which can be off-putting, which is why I recommend doing as much research into these topics prior to applying as possible. That way you can kind of move with as much knowledge but as far as once you're understanding what aspects of the offer is negotiable, oftentimes I'd recommend before an on-site or if you're you know, getting indications that you know, this next discussion is going to be your final round of interviews, I'd probably recommend at that time, so pre-on-site or pre-final interview, to have another discussion with the recruiter as your primary point of contact to ask those questions and just say, hey, I know we're approaching the end of the interview process. This has been great to learn more about the company and the culture, but I'd just like to have a little bit more thorough discussion about the salary to understand what flexibility there may be. And the reason why I recommend to do it at this point is because some companies may turn around an offer after a final round of interviews very quickly. And Depending on what you said during that initial touch point, they may turn around and offer with a set number almost immediately after a final round of interview. And if that's the case, your negotiation can prove more difficult because they already have a number in mind from that first conversation. So instead, I'd recommend right before that final interview or on-site interview to have that other discussion with the recruiters to understand and kind of position yourself more correctly for negotiations should that conversation go well. Yeah, and well, that sounds like it makes a lot of sense to me. Do you have any stories around when negotiations have gone wrong? I think a few examples here would really cement this in people's minds, you know, what, what we should be trying to avoid and, and what we should be looking out for. Yeah, and luckily, I continue to support a lot of good hiring managers. Um, so luckily, the, the horror stories, if you will, have been pretty few and far between. But they're out there, and they exist, and I've experienced probably more than my fair share of them. I've had it both ways, um, where candidates have really, really tried to heavily negotiate. I've had some offers go to you know six or seven revisions uh, of the offer because they were essentially playing a negotiation game with many companies. Uh, so they would get an offer from us and then they would take it to their other late stage company and say, hey, I have an offer with this 
number? Can you match it? And then play that game back and forth quite a bit. And that can work out to the candidate's favor sometimes. But I, I do recommend you need to make sure that you understand what you're valuing in an opportunity. If it's exclusively money, that's great. I, I wish you all the best. Um, and I, I hope you enjoy your FANG career at Facebook and Google because those are the only companies who are able to really be extraordinarily competitive with that salary. But instead, if you are interested in those smaller companies or you know those startups especially, you have to understand what you're valuing in an opportunity so that you're not playing these negotiation games. Because Frankly, I I have had some hiring managers who hear that a negotiation um, is happening and they have done the research themselves and they've decided that this budget is exactly appropriate for the role and it's exactly appropriate for the candidate that they're hoping to hire. And frankly, and I will say this isn't at my current uh, company, so I I can give them uh, a break specifically, but they've pulled the offer. If a negotiation is handled with disrespect or feels exploitative, it is always a possibility that a hiring manager may rescind an offer. It is not common practice uh, because obviously by the time that we're making an offer, we really do want to have you come on board, but it does happen. And you just have to make sure that you, regardless of if you are negotiating, you have to be careful and you have to be respectful in your negotiation um, because you never know how the decision makers on the other side are really going to react. And so if if you receive an offer that's 50% less uh, than what you're expecting, that may be a chance for you to pull out of the interview process, but you're likely never going to be able to negotiate doubling your salary, for instance, or even you know adding 40 to 50% to a salary. So by having those conversations, by knowing the market as early on as possible, you may understand, hey, maybe I can negotiate a 10% increase. But then most importantly, doing that respectfully and with the uh, recruiter as your partner and stakeholder uh, in the negotiations to make sure that you know that type of negotiation doesn't go bad. And I've had Candidates try and negotiate and then they lose out on the opportunity. So you just really have to be careful and, and respectful of how you're approaching it, which isn't that hard. And that's what I, I'd like to say. And, you know, I, I would recommend for candidates to try and negotiate, but I'd recommend doing it as soon as possible throughout the process and as respectfully as possible because that's going to lead to a better outcome. And I, I think it'll be very rare that someone will uh, have their offer rescinded but it, it is a possibility. When I'm listening to you, I'm thinking there must also be a danger in pushing it too far and getting the offer, but leading to this you know, bad blood between, like, between the colleagues. Like, because you, I, I guess you've got to keep remembering, well, I've got to work with these people. Yep. I might get what I want here and now, but if that's going to lead to like, a terrible relationship for the next five years, is it worth it? Yeah, I, I would definitely... Keep that in mind as you're negotiating. And it's a conversation that happens with the hiring manager and the recruiter. So, you know, if I, as a recruiter, am working with a candidate who's asking for, you know, say a 25% increase to their base salary and wants to see if there's a bonus plan available to them, I might take that to the hiring manager. And very often, that hiring manager may be. Well, you know, they were great through the interview process, but we've only, you know, we've only spoken with them over, you know, five hours. Um, we really have no indication of, you know, how they're actually going to translate their skill sets into what we're doing here. And oftentimes they can be held almost on a pedestal to higher expectations because of that negotiation. Whereas if it's a junior data scientist who we, you know, pay $60,000 no matter what, um, and we, we know they're going to be able to do the job, um, that may be a different factor. Whereas if it's a senior software engineer who's negotiating to a principal level software engineer, with that level increase, there's going to be an increase to the expectations. So you want to make sure that when you're negotiating to a level that your skill set is frankly going to be matching those expectations and skills. Whew. Wow. 
We've come a long way in this conversation. I, I particularly appreciate the, this this last bit here around negotiation. I, th- I think this is interesting stuff, and I'm, I'm I'm glad that you have taken the time to share with some of your insights with us. If we step back now, we think about hiring in in general. Do you ever hire like freelancers on like per project basis? Have you have you seen that happening in the geospatial world? Almost like as a test period. Okay, let's hire them on for this while, and then move into you know, being a full time employee. Or is it always that, that, that sort of standard hiring process that, that most of us have been through before, where there's an interview phase, there's, may, there's maybe some tests, there's a negotiation, then you get the job, and then you're a full-time employee? It's a good question, and it, it varies so much. And so Regrow Ag, uh, for instance, before our Series B round of funding, there was a lot of contract work, there was a lot of freelance work, and there were a lot of opportunities to, to get on in non-traditional aspects. And that's very common for smaller companies uh, because it is, you know, working on X project that needs to get done and then, you know, move on to the next thing, which requires a flexibility that's more suitable for freelance work or contract work, consultant work. Around, you know, the Series B round of company where it's, you know, 100 plus employees, you're probably going to see less flexibility in that, to be honest, because Instead, around that stage of company is where you start to invest in the long-term vision of what you want your employee base to look like. And if there's such a, a different composite of who makes up your company base between freelancers and contractors and full-time employees, it can kind of create a confusing vision in some ways. So oftentimes around this stage, you'll start to see more of an investment in those kind of traditional roles and everything as well. But I always, you know, recommend there's a lot of opportunities, you know, for freelancers and consultants, specifically for things like design work or product uh, management, product consulting. There's a lot of opportunities to really come in in these non-traditional aspects, but you just have to be much more creative in how you seek out those opportunities. Reach directly out to the department head and say, hey, I'm a freelancer working on design work. I, I noticed that this form is broken on your, you know, contract entry form, I'd be interested in helping out. You have to be a little bit more creative and a little bit more salesy to seek out those opportunities. But ultimately, they are out there. I think that's difficult to do, but I could definitely see the value in it. Instead of waiting for the other person to discover you and what you could do, how you could help them. Of course, it makes a lot more sense to reach out yourself. Ooh, but but, but I can imagine that imposter syndrome showing up in people (laughs) and it and making it difficult, you know, to take the first step yourself. Definitely. Hey, Jet, I think this is probably a great time to, to round off the conversation. Um, and I just want to say I've really enjoyed this. I, I really appreciate it. I think hiring, recruitment, and especially negotiation is something that, you know, most people don't talk about. But obviously, it's a big part of having a career. So thank you very much for, for sharing some of your insights uh, around this topic. Much appreciated. Where can people go if... If they listen to this and think, oh, you know what, I, I really need to, to ask this guy more questions. I, I want to contact him. I, I want to see what he's up to. Is there anywhere where we can point people towards? Yeah, there's, there's two places uh, primarily. Well, A, if you go to any geospatial career fair, you're probably <laughs> likely to, to see me uh, give my spiel. Um, but you can always find me on LinkedIn. Uh, that's going to be the, the most common place to, to find me. You know, it's where I respond, hopefully, to as many messages as possible, though the volume can be difficult. Um, but that's a great place to, you know, follow myself as, as well as the companies I work for. Alternatively, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Jet Recruits Geo is the, the Twitter account. But you may have to deal with more basketball uh, knowledge and not exclusively, you know, just geospatial recruiting. So uh, I'll, I'll leave it to you if you want to go down that route. <laughs> Just as a favor to the audience, I think it's important they know this. If I accidentally misspell your name and refer to you as Jeff instead of Jet, will, will you still reply? <laughs> uh, it's a good question. Uh, I, I have been called Jeff probably 5,000 times in my career. Um, so I, 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 I'm typically pretty fine with it now. Now, if we've been working together for you know, a month through a <laughs> recruitment process and then you call me Jeff, that may be a different, uh, different discussion. But uh, it happens all the time. <laughs> right. Well, appre- again, appreciate the insight. Thank you very much, Jet. Yeah, thank you, Daniel. 
Really hope you enjoyed that episode with Jed Metcalf. Um, as usual, there'll be links in the show notes to a few different episodes that, that are relevant to this one and also to where you can reach out to Jed, where you can catch up with him on LinkedIn and Twitter. Thanks very much for tuning in all the way to the end. It's much appreciated. As always, I'll be back again next week. I hope that you take the time to join me then. Cheers. Cheers.